just turn our attention to you right now. We thank you for the incredible testimonies that we heard this morning of your faithfulness and of your goodness. We thank you that you're a God of miracles. We thank you that you're here right now. Jesus, you're so good. You're so faithful. You're so patient and kind. Thank you, Jesus. He's so good. This morning when you woke up, did you give him thanks? I think it's, it's interesting because so often we can... We can get so caught up in everything else that's going on. And yet... In all of that, his faithfulness doesn't change. His character and his nature don't change. Sometimes the, the, the issues and challenges we face, they, they feel like they're bigger than anything else. And yet, as we read a, a few weeks ago, it says that he can actually identify with all of our struggles. Isn't that incredible? As we've been talking about our, our Out of Darkness, talking through Hebrews in our Out of Darkness series, we've been talking a lot about doubt and how to deal with doubt and how to deal with questions. And uh, oftentimes we look at doubt and we look at it as an intellectual problem. Where doubt versus faith becomes a, an intellectual conundrum that we need to wrestle through and we need to, to try and find a, a solution But what happens when doubt becomes a more personal problem? What happens when it's not just about an intellectual standpoint, but it's actually something that very deeply affects our hearts? What about when it comes to what we believe about ourselves? That when we hear what God says about us, we're like, yeah, but that can't be true for me. When he calls us sons and daughters, we're like, yes, I understand that for the person over there. But I don't get it for me. When he calls us righteous, when he calls us holy saints... How often does doubt undercut what we believe about ourselves? 
What about when it starts to influence the way we live because of what we believe about ourselves? When we, we, we feel like it's hard to share about Jesus because I don't know if I have what it takes. Where we feel like, well, I, you know, I, I know that if somebody else prays for that person, they'll get better. But if I do, they'll probably get worse. What happens when doubt so affects what you believe about yourself that it actually inhibits what God is calling you to? What he has said about you. What happens when, when our doubt actually influences what we believe about Jesus' sacrifice? That maybe his sacrifice was enough for everyone else, but I don't know if it's enough to deal with my inability, my insecurity, my own failures. Yes, maybe he can wash away the stuff I did 10 years ago, but, but what about yesterday? So often we don't live the way that Jesus has spoken about us. We see ourselves as the proletariat, the, just the working class church members. who We do our little part and we hope that we make it into heaven. And yet, there is so incredibly much that Jesus speaks about who you are when you come into relationship with him. This is the main point for this morning. If you are doubting what he says about you, you're doubting him. When we, oftentimes we, you know, Jesus says, well, you are righteous when you come to to Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 4 says, his righteousness is transferred onto you when you come in faith believing in Jesus. But so often we're like, well, no, that, that's for somebody else. Right? He opens up, a, uh, Paul opens up a number of his writings to different churches. He says, to the saints in Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians. We're like, well, that's maybe for them, but I'm still just a sinner. Saved by grace. When we doubt what he says about us, it's the same as doubting him. Because it's the same words that he speaks over you as when he says, I will provide for you. When he speaks about his nature, it's the same one who is speaking over what he has done for you as it is when he speaks about his own nature. So when we doubt what he says about us, we are doubting who he is. We can try and push that away and say, well, no, that's just my insecurity. But the root of it is that we're doubting. We don't believe what he said about us. Doubt causes us to be unsure. It's not a position of confidence. You don't 
walk in and like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded in doubt, but I'm so confident in my doubt. It, doubt is a position of unconfident, is not a position of confidence. It's a shaky foundation to build anything on. And to remain there, believing that it's a position of strength, is absolute foolishness. It will leave you spiritually indecisive, which is not something that God wants for you. He wants you to confidently be able to approach him, to confidently approach the throne, to confidently walk in relationship with him. He talks about, uh, the author, uh, James, in James chapter 1. He talks about doubt, and, and essentially he says that we are to ask with confidence, without doubt, because when we doubt, we are undecided like a wave in the ocean, up one minute and down the next. When he says, when you're half-hearted and wavering, it leaves you unstable. So in, the, in this passage, James is talking about asking God for wisdom, but the, the principle of asking, the principle of, of what doubt does to you is still the same. It leaves you up one minute, down the next minute. You're not sure which way is up or how to move forward. And it is not something that God has for you to stay in. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Yes, we're in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, but we're starting at 6 verse 19. See, the context of the book of Hebrews is that the, the first century Jewish believers were under a lot of persecution. They were being, they were being persecuted because they believed that you didn't have to hold the law any longer. They believed what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, which is the righteousness of Jesus was transferred onto them. So the author of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish people in the first century saying, look, don't, because of persecution, don't give up what Jesus has done for you. You have something so much better. Just because you're being persecuted, don't look back, don't turn around, don't give up. Don't let doubt be the thing that redirects how you live. Hebrews chapter 6 starting at verse 19. It says, We have this certain hope, like a strong, unbreakable anchor, holding our souls to God himself. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the mercy seat, which sits in the heavenly realm beyond the sacred threshold, and where Jesus, our forerunner, has gone in before us. He is now and forever our royal priest, like Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He was the king of peace because the name of the city he ruled as king was Salem, which means peace. And he was also a priest of the Most High God. Now when Abraham was returning from defeating many kings in battle, Melchizedek went out to meet him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of everything he had won in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. 
This Melchizedek has no father or mother and no record of any of his ancestors. He was never born and he never died, but his life is like a picture of the Son of God. A king priest forever. Now let me show you proof of how great this Melchizedek is. What I find fascinating about this is that this is at the time of Abraham. Now, Abraham existed before Moses, which means he existed before the law and the old covenant, which means Abraham lived before there was even a priesthood established. Right? So, so God came to Moses on the mountain. He says, I want you to set up a tabernacle and I want you to set up priests that are going to minister before God on behalf of the people. Before that, there was Abraham, and there's this, this meeting with this king and this priest called Melchizedek. Some scholars believe that Melchizedek was actually Jesus revealing himself to Abraham. And some believe that he was, it was just, he was just a picture pointing to Jesus. But all we have about him are about two verses in Genesis. And what's incredible is the tithe hadn't been established, the priesthood hadn't been established, and yet here was a man who was a priest of God, ministering to the nations. He wasn't just ministering to the Jewish people or to the Israelites, he was ministering to the nations. There wasn't a mandate for, at that point for Abraham to tithe to the priests. And yet Abraham tithes 10%. And so Hebrews outlines all of those points and then starting at verse 13, or actually we're going we're gonna to jump down to verse 18. And it's talking about how Jesus is a priest not because he was born to, to, in the line of the Levites, which would have been set by the Old Covenant, but he was actually designated as priest by God. And I realize priest doesn't mean a whole lot to us right now, right? Well, most of the time, if you think of priest, you think of like the Catholic church and they have the priest. But in the old covenant, the priest was mandated to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. There was absolutely no way for people to approach God unless they went through a priest. There was no forgiveness of sins aside from the sacrifice that the priest made on behalf of the people. And so the priest once a year would go into the most holy place, with fear and trembling. So, uh, I, I remember reading that they, they would say they would actually put bells on because if they stopped jingling, they would know to pull the rope and pull the guy out because he was dead. Like that wasn't like a, oh yay, we're going into the presence of God. That was like a, please pick him. I'm sure it's his turn. Let, let me stay out here with the bread and you know, I, I'm fine to do the, the sacrifice, but send him in. I've got young children. It wasn't a position of confidence when they walked in. They weren't coming confidently and boldly before the throne. This is what it says. It says, starting at verse 18, or jumping down to verse 18, the old order of priesthood has been set aside as weak and powerless. 
For the law has never made anyone perfect. But in its place is a far better hope, which gives us confidence to experience intimacy with God. How incredible is that? That because of Jesus, we have the freedom to come and experience not fear and trembling. We have the, the, we have the ability to come and experience intimacy with the creator of the universe. To know him intimately. Because of Jesus, because his faithfulness continues and endures... Because his righteousness is transferred to us. We can come and we can experience intimacy with God. See, the moral law has no power to give us confidence in approaching God. But like it says in verse 19, in its place is a far better hope. And he confirmed it to us with his solemn vow. For the former priests took their office without an oath. But with Jesus, God affirmed his royal priesthood with this promising, the Lord has made a solemn oath and will never change his mind. You are a king priest forever. So all of this magnifies the truth that we have a superior covenant with God than that which they experienced. For Jesus himself is its guarantor. And additional proof, or as additional proof, we know there were many priests under the old system. For they eventually died and their office had to be filled by another. But Jesus permanently holds his priestly office since he lives forever and will never have a successor. So he is able to save fully from now throughout eternity. Everyone who comes to God through him because he lives to pray continually for them. Did you know that? Do you know that God, sorry, that Jesus is constantly talking to God the Father about you? Does he continue, what is prayer? Prayer is talking to God, right? It's a conversation. You talk to him, he talks back to you. It says Jesus is continually in prayer for you. Which means that he is constantly talking to the Father about you. Continually. And it's not this kind of conversation, oh, can't believe what they did. Father, you'll never, you'll never guess what they did this time. It's not that kind of conversation. It's a conversation of mercy. It's a, it's a conversation that says, look at my son or my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Isn't, aren't they doing Amazing. Look at, how, look at how they're caring for those people. Look at how they're loving those people. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. The old covenant was about judgment. The new covenant is about mercy. And so what the, Jesus is talking to the Father about you is about grace, is about mercy. And he's doing it continually. It's continually in prayer for you. And because of that, 
you can boldly approach the throne. You don't approach like, oh man, Father, I know Jesus already told you, but I messed up. No, but because Jesus has said, my righteousness covers them. I've paid the price. We can actually boldly come before the throne. We can boldly walk into intimacy with God. Because his faithfulness doesn't end and is never limited, neither is your access to confidently experience intimacy. You say, but I sinned yesterday. I screwed up. Jesus was still interceding for you at that moment. You can still confidently approach because, not because of what you did. Here's the the difference. It's not about what you did. As soon as we get into what you did, it's about works righteousness. And yet your righteousness is anchored into Jesus being your high priest. And he is continually faithful. He never stops being faithful. Isn't that incredible? Come on, somebody. Isn't that incredible? That you have Jesus as your high priest. That you have Jesus as your high priest. Come on, somebody. Which means you no longer need to go through an earthly person to get to God. You have the exact same access to heaven as I do. You have exactly the same access to heaven as any priest or any pastor, any prophet. Do you realize that? It doesn't mean you don't still need training and you don't still need community, right? Don't take that to say, oh, well, then I don't need to come to church because I have my own relationship with you. Awesome. You still need people around you. We still need training in how to walk that out, but we still have the same access because, not because of what you did, not because you have all the answers, because of Jesus. Because he is continually interceding and mediating for you. What that also means, just as a side note, it means that the ownership, the onus of our faith doesn't rest with anybody else but us. It means we can't make the excuse, well, well, they didn't reach out to me. We can't make the excuse, well, my parents did this or that, because it's not about them mediating for you, it's about Jesus mediating for you. And so the onus for our faith is on us. And it's why we can't allow insecurity to rule our actions. We can't write it off. We can't push it off. It's, it's, it's become very common culturally to, to blame somebody else for your problems. Anybody notice that? Like, I messed up because my parents messed me up. Right? That's, that's, or my childhood messed me up. Or, but what... And I'm not, dis- I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Absolutely, I know there's hurt and there's pain and there's, there's problems that we have to work through. But what that does often is it puts the onus for our, fixing our problems on somebody else. 
Right? We could say, well, well, I don't have faith because I was in a church once and the pastor was hypocritical. Guess what? He's not your mediator. Jesus is. He's not the one that allows you to boldly approach in relationship the throne. Jesus is. And his faithfulness never changes. So I have the privilege to love the church, not because the church treats me, has treated me well or because I like the people there. I'm not saying I... Don't misunderstand me. I love you all. I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about the global church. But that's not why I love the church. I love the church because Jesus is faithful. And I believe that the church is the, the entity that he has chosen to do his work on earth. But my relationship comes because Jesus is faithful, because he is the one mediating for me. Now, what's, what's incredible is that in the, in the context of the Old Covenant, there were a few times, and you'll read stories, and, and we, don't, we tend to get upset about these stories because we don't understand that it wasn't just anyone who could approach, the, could approach God. They had the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And there's a few times, uh, one in particular, where they're bringing the Ark, Israel is bringing the Ark back to Jerusalem. And the oxen stumble, and somebody reaches out, just a random person reaches out and puts their hand on the Ark to steady it. And it says they died instantly. And we're like, well, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because our understanding is that every one of us can approach the throne of God. But under the old covenant law, only the priests were allowed once a year to approach the presence of God. Because they were set apart, because they had dedicated their lives This wasn't a flippant approach. You couldn't just willy-nilly saunter in and be like, hey God, I've got a question for you. I want to read you something. Revelations chapter 1, 5 and 6. It says, Now to the one who constantly loves us and has loosed us from our sins by his own blood and to the one who has made us to rule as kingly priesthood to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion throughout the eternity of eternities. Amen. Revelations 5.10, you have chosen us, say everyone say us, to serve our God and formed us, say us, into a kingdom of priests who reign on the earth. The end of chapter 6 says Jesus is our forerunner. Somebody who goes before but he's also our example. See, if Jesus wasn't our high priest, we couldn't even approach God. But that's not all. That's not the entirety of what's so incredible about this passage. Because not only does he allow us to approach, but he actually calls us kings and priests. He sets the example. He says, this is, let me demonstrate it for you. Then he says, you can approach, and the only people, remember, the only people who can approach the presence of God are the priests. 
And so Jesus says, let me set out an example. Now, I am, as my righteousness is transferred onto you, so is your calling as kings and priests. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you are called by God to serve as kings and priests? That you are called to minister before God on behalf of the nation that you live in. We aren't just approaching the presence of God for us. We don't just get there because it feels good and it's fun. We're actually approaching so that we can bring our community and our nation into an encounter with Jesus. Do you realize that? That that is what God has called us to do as his church, to be a priest, to bring people into an encounter with Jesus through our lives. Not just to be the working class church member, right, who we just kind of hope that that something's going to happen. We are actually called to be kings and priests, to minister to the world from that perspective. To be devoted, to be set apart. We still need training. We still need to learn how to be priests and kings, how to interact that way. We still need community. And I wonder, what if instead, what if instead of building churches that would attract people, that would fulfill our need of what we feel, what if we would start building communities that would gather around the presence of Jesus? Where our number one mission and goal is to minister to the heart of the Father. Like priests. And then as an outflow from that, we minister to those around us. We bring them into encounter. What if there was no longer a division between Sunday morning and our spiritual side and Monday morning and our regular side? See, when it comes to to following Jesus, there is no longer a division between sacred and secular. There's no longer one outfit that we, one mask that we put on for Sunday morning and another one we wear on Monday morning. We are invited to minister at all times, which means everything, your job, your family, your friends, is sacred. Every part of that is meant to be a part of advancing the kingdom of God on earth. So what are we doing to convert our lives into a holy place from which Jesus can minister? Turn with me to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. And verse 9. This is what it says. It says, they keep stumbling over the message because they refuse to believe it. I'm sorry, that's verse 8. Start verse 9. 
But you are God's chosen treasure. This is speaking to you. Okay? This isn't speaking to me. I mean, it is, but speaking to all of us. You are God's chosen treasure. Priests who are kings. A spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness. What a coincidence that we're talking about that during our series called Out of Darkness. To experience his marvelous light. And now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. Wow. You realize that that's what you're called to? How many know this isn't just a manual for pastors? Right? If it's written in here, it's for you. That he would set you apart as his very own. He would call you kings and priests to be a spiritual nation. And that's all that's required in that is to come and accept Jesus' invitation to be part of the family. For at one time you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time you knew nothing of God's mercy because you hadn't received it yet. But now, listen to this, you are drenched with it. Say drenched with it. Do you realize that you are drenched in God's mercy? Isn't that an incredible picture? You're surrounded, you're covered. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, it talks about, uh, it's talking about the fivefold ministry, and it says that, that the role of the fivefold is to equip the saints, who are the saints, Put your hand up if you're a saint. All right. Some of you are not sure. This message is for you this morning. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What ministry? The ministry of being priests and kings to the nation. That we are actually called to have the faith to minister, not just to sit on the sidelines. And say good word, but actually to preach the word. That's what God is calling you to. It doesn't necessarily mean that you... you... Okay, let's get something clear though, just quickly. This stage, this doesn't reflect spiritual hierarchy. Just because I'm elevated on a stage doesn't mean that spiritually I have more access. The only reason we have this is so that you can all see me. Right? If I didn't get complaints that, well, when I'm standing on the floor, nobody can see me, I wouldn't be up here. Okay? Just so that's clear. We are called to minister to the world. Jesus has invited you to be on his team, to play the game. And so often we get so caught up in our doubts that we would rather sit on the sidelines and cheer and be like, not, not even cheer, it's like, yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that. I took that in as a spectator. And yet that is not what we're called to. We're called to be kings and priests in the example of Jesus who is our high priest in heaven. 
And I, I'm not just talking about getting involved and volunteering for church programs. Okay, this isn't like a, this isn't a message to be like, okay, now go sign up. Yes, those things build character and they will develop you and you will grow spiritually by serving the body of Christ. But it's not about just doing that. It's about taking the gospel to the world. To your coworkers, to your neighbors. To actually display Jesus, to make him famous. Put Jesus on display to the world. Church, the way that we live sets our lives as a holy place from which Jesus can minister. First Peter 2.11 My divinely loved friends, since you are resident aliens and foreigners in this world, I appeal to you, divorce yourself from the evil desires that wage war within you. Live honorable lives as you mix with unbelievers. Even though they accuse you of being evildoers, for they will see your beautiful works and have reason to glorify God in the day he visits us. In order to honor the Lord, you must respect and defer to the authority of every human institution. Whether it be the highest ruler or the governors he puts in place to punish lawbreakers and to praise those who do what's right. For it's God's will for you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is right. And as God's loving servants, you should live in complete freedom, but never use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Recognize the value of every person and continually show love to every believer. Live your lives with great reverence and in holy awe of God. Honor your rulers. The way we live honorably in the world, it sets our lives up as a holy place. You want to know, well, how do I live as a, as a priest? How do I live as a king when I'm at work, when I'm with my family, when I'm with my in-laws, when I'm with that great uncle who is just racist and hate-filled? How do I leave, live as a priest in those situations? How do I make my life a holy place when I'm not in a holy place? When we live honorably, we make our lives a holy place. When we respect authority. Now here's the thing is, we often look at it as like, well, I don't agree with their policies. Jesus didn't ask you if you agreed with their policies. Through Peter, he said, respect authority. Respect government, respect police, respect uh, anyone in authority. That's how you live as priests. You see, the, the, the conduct that was required for priests was different than that that's required of the proletariat. Kings and priests don't act like everyday people. Right? If the queen showed up in a hoodie, drinking a beer, right, with her earplugs in, you'd be like, no, that's not the queen. She's a pretty cool old lady, but that's not the queen. Right? We, we, even, even you look at how often celebrities are treated. We have a higher standard for what we expect from them than we do from our own lives. In the Old Covenant, the, the 
pre- the Levites, the priests, had a set way of living. They had to wear different clothes than everybody else. They had to act different than everybody else. They had to... They had to uh, dress... Di- I said dress different. They had to wash differently than everybody else. There was a different standard for the way they lived to be set apart and holy before God. The way you value every single person. Now hear this. Not just the people who you agree with. Not just the people who treat you right. The way you value every single person. Sets your life as a holy place. The the way... Sometimes, here's the thing. We're almost done. Sometimes we find it easier to love people outside the church than we do the people in the church. If you find yourself there, because we think maybe they should know better or something, the way you continually show love to every believer sets your life as a holy place. The way you love your fellow brothers and sisters. Not just the ones sitting in here. The way you love your brothers and sisters who meet this morning at the Baptist church, who meet at the Anglican church, who meet at the Catholic church. The way you love your brothers and sisters who live off island, who are meeting this morning. The way you love every believer sets your life up as a holy place. When we uproot doubt about who Jesus says we are, not because we believe in ourselves, but because we believe in his faithfulness as our high priest. When we choose to respond out of our identity of who he says we are, instead of our prior brokenness. That's when we live as kings and priests. If you're doubting who he says you are, you're doubting him. What you believe about yourself, it affects what you do with your life. It affects how you minister to the world around you. And your identity as a follower of Jesus doesn't come from your feelings, doesn't come from what other people say about you. It comes from one place. It comes from your high priest who is continually praying on your behalf. Now this is the crowning point of what we're saying. Hebrews 8.1 We have a magnificent king priest who ministers for us at the right hand of, the, of God. He is enthroned with honor next to the throne of the majesty on high. And because of this, because of his sacrifice, we can boldly approach. We can have intimacy with God. And because of this, each one of us is called by his example to live as priests and kings to our neighbors, to our community, and to each other. Let's pray.
Jesus, we give you thanks and praise this morning for who you are. We thank you that because you, for all eternity, you're faithful. And you're making continual prayer and mediation for us. We thank you that we can come and have confident relationship with you. I pray this morning that even before we leave here, you would make this so real to us. This wouldn't just be words that somebody is saying, but that, that you would embed them deep within our hearts. That as we choose to believe them, Jesus, we thank you that, I thank you this morning that you are uprooting doubt. And with it, you're destroying insecurity. You're destroying low self-esteem because of who you are, Jesus. We thank you. Amen.